Let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, turn our attention to you now. And we ask, Father, that, uh, that you would speak to us in ways that we need to hear. We pray, Father, that you would uh, open our eyes to your word, your truth, and that you would appropriate to us precisely what we need to learn as a people. We ask, Father, that you would guide this study, that you would help us to learn from it, to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt. And they fled to Egypt on account of King Herod the Great. They were scared because Herod had sent out an order to kill all the male children, years two and younger, in all of the land. Herod had caught wind that a Messiah, a Christ child, had been born. And so Herod, in an attempt to rid his region of any young boy that might potentially be the Christ child, he gave the order to execute all of the baby boys in the region. And so Joseph and Mary, in, revealed in a, in a dream by an angel, were told, you need to leave, you need to go, you need to run to Egypt. And they did. Off they went. But after Herod died, it was determined that the threat to Jesus' life was gone. So, in Matthew 2, we read another proclamation of an angel. Matthew 2, 19. An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go, to, go back to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. But, on their way home, Joseph and Mary were again urged to take precaution on their journey. This time, from verse 22 of Matthew 2. But when he, Joseph, heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod the Great, Joseph was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. Archelaus. Archelaus was the second reason that Joseph was fearful in the land of Israel with his young son. The first reason was Herod the Great. Herod the Great had given the order to kill all the baby boys, and so Joseph and Mary had fled to Egypt. But then as they came back, there was another man, Archelaus, who inspired fear in Joseph. Who was this man? Why was Joseph so fearful of him? Well, soon after Herod the Great had died, Herod's sons were vying for their father's power. Herod had left a will, much like we would leave a will upon our death, and he had appointed his son Archelaus as ruler over Palestine. And Archelaus immediately assumed that role in Jerusalem upon his father's death. But Herod the Great's will, his last will and testament, was not the final word. Caesar was the one who would ultimately determine who would succeed Herod the Great. 
And it was incumbent upon Herod's sons to travel to Rome, a faraway land, in search of securing their kingdom. Before they would leave for Rome, in the hopes of acquiring their kingdom, they first would try to secure the trust of the people. Caesar preferred, and the Herods knew, of, knew this, Caesar preferred to appoint territorial rulers who had gained a measure of rapport with the people of the land. And so before Archelaus sailed to Rome, before Herod's son and some of his other sons who were vying for power, before they all sailed to Rome to meet with Caesar, Archelaus appealed to his citizens for their support. But the Jews did not give it. The Jews were convinced that Archelaus would be just like his father, Herod the Great, cruel, evil, ruling with an iron fist. As they hated Herod the Great, so also they hated the idea of Herod's son ruling over them. And their hatred of him was only reinforced by early encounters with Archelaus and his soldiers. On the very first Passover, the very first Feast of Unleavened Bread, one of the greatest feasts in all of Israel, on the very first Passover of Archelaus' interim reign, his soldiers had an intense exchange with the Jewish citizenry. Tempers flared, swords were drawn, and a melee ensued that ended with the death of some of Archelaus' men. And so... In a fit of rage, Archelaus canceled the Feast of Passover. He canceled it. The greatest Jewish feast on the calendar. He said, no more. And he sent not just a delegation of soldiers, but an entire army of his soldiers into Jerusalem, into the Temple Mount, where they slaughtered 3,000 Jews in one day. 3,000. This is... uh, made mention of in Josephus, uh, Flavius Josephus' work, The Antiquities of the Jews. You can read about it in uh, Book 17 of uh, Antiquities. Needless to say, the Jews were desperate. They were desperate to depose Archelaus. And so, as Archelaus sailed for Rome to receive his kingdom, the Jews sent a delegation along with him to defy him before Caesar. The historian Josephus records this event in book two of his War of the Jews. He writes, quote, But now came another accusation from the Jews against Archelaus at Rome. It was made by those Jewish ambassadors who had come to plead for the liberty of their country. Those that came were 50 in number, a delegation of 50 Jews, But there were more than 8,000 of the Jews in Rome who had supported them. Archelaus sails for Rome. As he does, the Jews send their own ship. They send a delegation of 50 from Jerusalem. And as they arrive, they find 8,000 other Jews who are in support of their cause. And they stand before Caesar and they point at Archelaus and say, Not this man. Not this man. Choose someone else to rule over us. Don't choose this man. Sadly, the Jewish delegation failed in Rome. And Caesar awarded all of Judea to Archelaus. And upon his return, 
payback was in order for Archelaus' political enemies. For over a decade, the heavy hand of Archelaus ruled over the Jewish people, and many Jews were persecuted, wrongfully imprisoned, and even executed under his reign. Why this history lesson? Why, why spend so much time speaking about uh, a Roman-appointed ruler in Judea? Well, what relevance does this have for us today? Oftentimes, it is hard to relate to the parables that Jesus teaches in the Gospels. They often contain elements that are very foreign to us, very unfamiliar to us. And that is why a study of history and culture of Jesus' era is so important to the task of biblical interpretation. In fact, I would argue it's essential to the task of biblical interpretation. For as we study history and culture, we begin to see more clearly the backdrop behind many teachings of our Lord. In our study today, in Luke 19, Jesus tells a parable that would be very foreign and unfamiliar to us were we not to understand the history and the culture of that day. But understood from its historical vantage point, we can begin to see just where Jesus was going with a story such as this one. Would you please stand with me as we read from Luke 19, a parable of the Minas, verses 11 to 27. Luke 19, 11 to 27. Luke narrates verse 11. Now as they, that is the people of Jericho and Zacchaeus and his disciples and the crowds that had gathered from the previous uh, pericope there, as they heard these things, Jesus spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. And to return. So he called ten of his servants and delivered the, to them ten minus and said to them, Do business until I come. Verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, the first servant, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. Then he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second one came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief, for I feared you. Because you're an austere man, you're a severe man. You collect what you do not deposit, you reap what you do not sow. And the nobleman said to him, Out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? that at the coming I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten. 
But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you, that to everyone who has will be given. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. You may be seated. This story, this parable, is not at all unlike many real-life episodes in the ancient Near East where renowned politicians would routinely travel to Rome in search of a kingdom. The renowned noblemen of, of various regions who, uh, uh, who were trying to oversee territories of Rome, they would travel to Rome, they would travel to Caesar, they would take lawyers with them, and they would lobby, they would petition that they might be the ones who could be given the kingdom from Caesar, a measure of the kingdom. The Jewish people were all too familiar with this kind of story. They had lived it under Archelaus. Of course, there are significant differences between the story of Archelaus receiving a kingdom and of the nobleman in this parable who receives a kingdom. Most prominent among them is that Archelaus, he was a wicked man, whereas the man referred to in this parable by Jesus is a good and a righteous man, a noble man in verse 12. Take a look again at verses 11 through 13. Now as they heard these things, Jesus spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, do business until I come. Just as wicked Archelaus had traveled to Rome to receive a kingdom, so also this nobleman goes to a far country to receive his kingdom. What kind of kingdom? We're not told. Jesus leaves this uh, a little bit opaque, a little bit unclear. But in the days prior to his departure, wherever he was going, the nobleman in Jesus' story is seen divvying up responsibilities divvying up opportunities to his trusted household servants, douloi in Greek. After all, if he is, if this nobleman is to receive a kingdom, if he is to receive expanded authority, expanded territory upon which to rule, then he most definitely will need additional help. And his servants are the ones who must exhibit whether or not they're ready to take care of those expanded authorities. The nobleman is, is looking. He is, he's watching. He's analyzing to see whether or not which of his servants are most equipped to handle additional authority, additional responsibility. So he poses a test. He poses a test. He takes 10 minas. Amina, uh, various scholars disagree on, on the, the net worth of Amina. Some say it was a smaller amount. Others say it was as much as three months' wages. Um, for our purposes today, it, it kind of doesn't matter, so I'll let you uh, hash that out in your own uh, studies if you'd like. But whatever it was, it was a sum of money that was entrusted to each of the servants. Ten minas was given one to each of these ten servants. They were all given an equal amount. They were all given the same amount 
And they were given one word of advice. One word of advice. Do business until I come. Do business until I come. Negotiate. Set up contracts. Make investments. Take the resources that I'm giving to you and do something with it. Be productive with it. Be profitable with it. And off the nobleman goes to a far country. But while he is away, there is a coup back home. His servants, the douloi, were not the instigators of the coup. They were, after all, loyal to the master. Instead, it was the citizens, politi, under his rulership, that rebelled. Take a look at verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. We will not have this man to reign over us. Just as the Jews, in our historical study of Archelaus, just as the Jews had sent a delegation of 50, 50 men to go before Archelaus and to petition and lobby Caesar and say, not this man, not this man, so also in Jesus' story, his parable, we have a delegation of citizens that go before the nobleman to oppose him. We will not have this man reign over us, they say. Their opposition uh, would have been well known to the nobleman. In Archelaus' day, he would have uh, traveled to Rome again with his lawyers, with his entourage. They would have petitioned Caesar, and Caesar would have given opportunity for dissenters, for those who had a problem with Archelaus receiving a kingdom. And no doubt the Jews... Uh, who were a, a large contingency uh, by that time in uh, the nation, uh, the, in the city of Rome, though not a majority, but a, a, a sizable minority of people, the Jews would have been given a, a measure of time to lobby against the decision to give the kingdom to Archelaus. And so, so in the same manner, this nobleman who goes to a far country to receive a kingdom, he would have known who his opposition was. He would have known, he would have been able to see the citizens who opposed him, the delegation of people who had been sent, commissioned to go and to say, not this man, anyone but him. But just as the delegation, the Jewish delegation, that sailed to Rome in opposition of Archelaus, just as they failed to persuade Caesar, And Caesar instead gave the kingdom to Archelaus. In the same way, the opposition, the delegation that goes to oppose the noblemen, they failed too. They failed too. And as they return from the faraway country, it is made evident that the nobleman has in fact received the kingdom. Look at the beginning of verse 15. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, the delegation failed. The citizenry failed in their efforts to thwart the authority given to the nobleman. Well, 
if uh, history is in order and the Jews uh, in Jericho who are listening to this story there, they very much can understand the kind of story that Jesus is telling and they're thinking in their minds, ah, I know what's going to happen to those citizens. Payback. Payback. Payback upon receipt of the kingdom, which is the title of this message here today. This nobleman is going to get payback as he's received the kingdom. He got it. He won. He went before the ruler and he was given an extra measure of authority. Payback is in order. And the Jews of Jericho, listening to Jesus' story, were expecting, anticipating that the nobleman would uh, turn vengeful. But interestingly enough, the nobleman first turns his attention to another group of people. He turns his attention to his own loyal servants first. Look again at verse 15. And so it was that when he returned, the nobleman, having received the kingdom, having won, received it, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Though the nobleman, though the nobleman was quite aware of the hostility of his countrymen, his first order of business upon receiving expanded authority and rule was to deal with his supporters, his servants, his loyal household douloi, his servants, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. And so he goes to inspect what his servants had done with the mina entrusted to them, beginning in verse 16. Look at the first two responses. Then came the first servant, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. The nobleman's first order of business upon having received the kingdom was to turn his attention upon his own. To start with his own house. Beginning with his own house. And the first servant approaches him and says, Master, I've got great news. The resources that you entrusted to me, I have made a profit that is tenfold. I've taken what you've given me and I've done business. I, I, I've invested. I've, I've, I've put together contracts. I've, I've, I've put in time, money, sweat, and tears, and, and I have earned a profit. Master, your mina has earned ten. I've earned you tenfold. And the master is so pleased. Because he's, he's looking, he's looking for those whom, whom he can trust, whom he can delegate authority to. He's gone to seek the kingdom, to get expanded authority, expanded rule, and he's come back victorious, having received a kingdom. And as he comes back, he's looking for those that he can entrust with more authority. And the first comes to him and says, I have made a tenfold return on your investment, master. One mina to ten. 
And the master says to him, he's so excited and overjoyed, he says, well done, good servant. Because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. The master, the nobleman had gone, he had petitioned, he had lobbied, he had received a kingdom, expanded authority, larger territory, more cities, more people over which to rule. Probably dozens of cities. Maybe a whole huge region of territory. And as he came back, he thought to himself, hey, I, I, can't, I can't cover all of these cities. I can't cover all of this citizenry. I'm going to have to delegate authority. And this man, this man, this trusted servant of mine, this household servant has made a tenfold return on my investment. I'm going to give him ten of my cities. Expanded authority given to the master, yet rather than hoard it all to himself, he gladly delegated that authority to his faithful and judicious servants to those who demonstrated worth and value. And the same with the second. Look at the second servant, verse 18. And the second came saying, Master, your mina has earned five. Likewise, he said to them, then you be over five cities. We don't hear the, the, the greatest of accolades for this man. You don't hear the words, well done, good servant. You don't hear that, that kind of special uh, uh, mention of praise. But nevertheless, a five-fold return, well done. You're going to be over five cities, he tells this servant. And the master is, is delegating authority to his loyal subjects. But then came another servant whose profitability to the master was much different than the first two. Take a look at verse 20 and 21. Then another came, another servant, saying, Master, here is your mina which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man, a severe man. You collect what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. Here comes another servant. There are ten. This is a third servant who comes to him. They're, they're kind of in, indicative here of, of uh, we're not going through all ten, obviously, in the story, as, you'll, as you can read. But nevertheless, these are indicators of different kinds of servants and the different kinds of profitability that they had for the master. And this servant, in his mindset, he was fearful of the master. He was paralyzed by fear. And he didn't know what it would look like for him to serve the master. And so instead, he took the mina, he took the resource entrusted to him, and he tucked it away in a handkerchief. And he folded it up and he put it in his pocket and kept it safe. Thinking that, you know what, all I'm going to do is I'm going to hand it back to him and perhaps he will be content with not having lost anything. I feared you. You're a severe man. You collect what you do not deposit. You reap what you do not sow. You are... A very judicious businessman, sir. You are, uh, it's, it's, it's scary to be in your presence. I, I'm fearful. I'm paralyzed by fear. I don't know how to conduct business. I, 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 I'm a little slothful. I'm a little sluggish. And so I just decided to keep it in my pocket. I know you gave me resources. I know you gave me abilities. I know you gave me this talent, this mina. I just didn't know what to do with it. And so I put it away. I figured 
maybe I could just give it back to you. And the master responds, verse 22. And he said to him, verse 22, the master said to this servant, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I do not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at, the, at my coming, I might have collected it with interest? The master was deeply disappointed in his servant, whom he calls wicked for his sluggishness, his slothfulness. He judges him based on his his merits, his words. He says, out of your own mouth I will judge you. You knew my request. You knew that I expected you to do business until I returned. That is, I expected you to take the resources that I've given you and to bring about a profit, a dividend, an increase. At the very least, you could have deposited it with the bank so that I might have gained interest, but you didn't even do that. You took all of the resources I had given you and you did nothing with it. Verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten. But they said to him, Master, he has ten. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. The mina was was taken. It was taken from the wicked, slothful servant. And it was given to the man who had earned ten. And up came protest, right? I mean, we we live in a culture where everything's equal, right? Everything's fair. We We get a trophy for participation in our culture today, right? Up came the protest. What are you talking about? Master, you can't do that. He has ten. You can't take the one that's left from this poor servant and give to the one who already has so much? That's not fair. You can't do that. He doesn't need any more. The master's words in response are quite haunting. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. To everyone who has, more will be given. You think of uh, financial services, or any business for that matter, but particularly financial services. You know, when, when an investor... Uh, finds uh, 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 a man or woman that he trusts in financial services. He he'll give him his first five thousand or ten thousand dollars to invest, and he'll sit back and he'll wait and he'll see how does this investor how does this investor do with my money, and he'll sit back and he'll watch and he'll he'll look and he'll check the statements and he'll check to see whether or not that five or ten thousand initial investment has gone up. Has it increased three percent, five percent, ten percent, twenty percent, or has it gone down? And what's interesting about, of course, financial services is that those who have money, those who have money to invest, they don't give money to people that lose money for them. They give more money to those who earn them more money. 
You don't give $10,000 to an investor who loses 25% of your money in a year. You don't say, hey, great job. I appreciate losing 25%. Here's another 10. That would never happen. Instead, you would look for another one to invest your money. The same is true here. The same is true here. There is great responsibility to those who receive resources from the master. Every servant was given a mina. All ten, a number signifying fullness, completion. Every servant was given an equal share of the master's resources. And every servant was expected to turn a profit on that investment. But to those, and to those who turn a profit, to those who invest the mina wisely, who invest the money wisely, they will be given more. It's a matter of fact. Of course they will. That's how life works. You can protest all you want, but the reality of life is that those who invest wisely will be entrusted with more. Those who provide a business service to others that is exceptional will be given more business. By contrast, the end of verse 26, but from him who does not have, that is to say from him who takes the resources given to him and squanders it, to him who takes the trust afforded him and relinquishes that trust, even what he has will be taken away from him. If we fail to invest wisely, if we fail to serve with distinction, we can lose even what we have. Not our life, but we'll lose the ability to be entrusted with more in the nobleman's kingdom. Of course, one group will lose quite a bit more. Our final verse, verse 27. The master says, but bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Archelaus Archelaus, uh, whimsically slaughtered his political enemies. It was his prerogative to use his army in that way. Many protested his use of force as, uh, as they believed it to be completely unjustified. But nevertheless, it was his prerogative to do so. In similar fashion, the man of Jesus' parable also orders the death of certain citizenry that oppose him. He no doubt heard their protest as well. But this nobleman found it warranted, found it justified to call for their demise. They had committed treason. They had opposed the noble and lawful ruler of their land. And the punishment of death was befitting their crime. All this time, as we've covered this parable, we may have lost sight again of of who Jesus is speaking to. Jesus is in Jericho, moments away from his triumphal entry, the moment that we celebrate for Palm Sunday. He is speaking before Zacchaeus. He is speaking before his disciples and the crowds of Jericho. They knew all too well the story of Archelaus just a few decades prior. And they knew what their people did to Archelaus. 
And they knew what happened in response. But as they listened to this story of Jesus, they also knew that Jesus wasn't speaking about Archelaus. He was speaking about some, someone else. And for those with ears to hear it and eyes to see it, they could perceive that Jesus was speaking about himself. Jesus was about to receive a kingdom. Not from Caesar, but from God the Father. Jesus was about to receive a kingdom. Not the physical territory of Israel, but the eternal kingdom of God. And there would be payback upon receipt of this kingdom. To those that rejected the king, there would be death. Archelaus unjustly executed his citizenry. When Jesus returns and the kingdom of God is made manifest in full, he will execute justice in in perfect righteousness. He will carry out the perfect righteousness of God. And to those who have rejected him, rejected the Messiah, rejected Jesus as the Savior, they will be cast away. They will be set aside. The Lord will come. He will evaluate their works as it's mentioned at the end of Revelation. But none of their works will be found to justify their entrance into the kingdom of God. And they will be sent to hell. To the servants of the king, Jesus is speaking to the people of Jericho saying, there's opportunity though. There's opportunity for you who are my servants. To those of you who have trusted me in faith. To those of you who recognize who I am, who are loyal to me and my house. He's going to give resources to all those who accept him in faith. Different gifts to be sure, but an equal share with which each of us can serve the master. And the payback, the payback is going to be in proportion to how well we use those resources. To those who use Christ's resources well, to those who take what he's given to them and use them for uh, the increase of his kingdom, for the betterment of his church, for evangelism, for service, for volunteering in his kingdom work, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servants. You've been entrusted with a little. I'm going to give you a whole lot more. And there's going to be varying degrees in which we take the resources that Christ has given to us and use them in his kingdom. There's going to be varying degrees in which we bring about profitability for our Lord. But I can tell you this, based on how valuable we are to the master, that's how valuable he will treat us in the kingdom. To those who are not uh, good stewards of their resources. To those who take what God has given to them and say, you know what, I'm just going to bury it. I'm going to take it, I'm going to put it in my pocket. I'm going to just, you know, I'm just going to be paralyzed. Slothful. Sluggish. Slow to respond to what God wants me to do in life. To those who pocket God's resources. There will be 
a sense of loss on the last day. As we've made mention so many times in, in recent studies here in Luke and also, of course, in the epistles of Paul, um, there'll be loss. Some of us will be saved, yet so is through fire, Paul says. That is to say, we'll enter heaven because we've trusted in Christ as our Savior. We'll enter heaven because we believed in Jesus Christ as Messiah, but we'll have nothing to show for it. And all of the resources, all of the good things that God gave to us and said, use this, use this, use this talent, use this gift, use this money. We'll say, Lord, I, I, I didn't know what to do with it. So which are you? Are you the citizenry that's currently rejecting the king? If you continue to reject him all the way until death, you will die eternally. Are you the servants of the master who have trusted in Christ, yet are using the master's resources poorly? You know that you have gifts. You know that you have means. You know that you have resources. You know that you have time. And yet you spend it frivolously. You pocket and keep to yourself all that God has given to you. Or are you those servants who uses God's resources wisely? Know this, there will be payback upon receipt of the kingdom. The nobleman has gone. He's gone to the cross. He's gone to the grave. He's been raised from the grave. And he is awaiting the final trumpet sound when he will return to this earth and pay back those on earth. May we be those wise and judicious servants who use the master's resources well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that you have high expectations of us. We can see it in a parable such as this one. We pray, God, that we would find ourselves in line with those servants of the master who used their resources wisely. Lord, we know that in this life, there are so many things in which we could expend our resources. We could spend our money on our own entertainment and on on our own pleasure. We could spend the gifts and the talents and the education and the means that you've given to us in ways that are just kind of foolish. Or, Father, we could spend them for the kingdom. We could use those things that you've given to us and make them resources for your church, for your kingdom's expansion. Father, we pray that we would be servants who invest wisely in your kingdom. We know that you're coming again to pay us back. Let us be ready to receive a great reward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.